Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Today, I am joined by somebody who I started following on Twitter, found very interesting, and wanted to bring on to discuss the topics that are kind of front of mind for Stack Overflow, the company, and for a lot of software developers. People cannot say generative AI enough. Cameron Wolf is a PhD student who is working on things in this area, deep learning, neural nets, AI, over at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He's also the director of AI at Rebuy Engine, which is creating intelligent shopping experiences. And he has a terrific Twitter account and a newsletter that has helped me to stay, yeah, stay on top of this stuff as best as one can when research breakthroughs and new products are rolling out daily. So Cameron, welcome to the Stack Overflow Podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So I guess, yeah, give us a little bit of background. Like, how did you get into the world of software and technology? And when did you start to hone in on the world of AI? Yeah, so actually, the first time I ever wrote a program was after my senior year of high school. I basically graduated high school and decided not to work over the summer. So I wanted to take (laughs) a break before I got into undergrad. So it took me about like two weeks to get bored. And I had never like known anything about programming. I was terrible with computers and stuff like that. And I decided to go on to Code Academy and try and learn how to program a little bit. And I remember immediately having a thought where I was like, huh, wouldn't this be funny? Like, this is pretty fun. This would be funny if I like completely changed my major to this or something like that. (laughs) Right. But at the time it was like too early. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But that was the first time I had ever written like a program or anything. I went to undergrad, majored in mechanical engineering initially didn't like it very much. And I ended up joining at UT Austin, which is where I got my undergrad, something called a freshman research initiative stream. It's a program that takes undergrads that are very early in like their upper level education experience and introduces them to academic research. And UT Austin has like one of the top programs for this in the world, which was awesome. And because I had previously like done a little bit of programming over the summer, I thought it would be cool to get into like a computer science-based research stream. The one that I ended up joining out of pure luck, because the guy who ran it also was like a mechanical engineer by training, it just happened to be focused on AI. It was run by the Neural Networks Research Group at UT Austin, who Mm. I did um, research for for three years after that. They looked into like a small subsect of AI called kind of just genetic algorithms, which looks into instead of training neural networks with like gradient based methods, which is the standard, they train them with like these evolution techniques that are inspired by like, you know, evolutionary processes in biology. Interesting. So I did that for like three years. Somewhere during that process, I decided that I wanted to change my major to computer science. So it took me up until like the end of my junior year to do that. And then I had to take the entire like computer science coursework during my senior year of college, (laughs) which was pretty interesting, but made it work. And then from there, just from doing research, I knew that I liked AI. I liked computer science. So I applied to PhD programs. I got rejected by 17 of them and then accepted by one program, which was Rice University in Houston, which is a great school. So then I just went there, continued doing research. Now uh, my research is more related to like gradient-based techniques, just more standard like mainstream deep learning research. 
Right. Um, so I got a little bit away from like the research that I did previously, but it's all related to just making deep learning more practical and easy to use. And I'm actually defending my dissertation in two weeks, two and a half weeks. All right. Well, I won't take up too much of your time. Yeah. Okay. I know you need to study and prepare for that. I didn't realize you were on the clock. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think most people, including myself, are sort of passingly familiar with this idea of like, you know, stochastic gradient descent and backpropagation and, you know, that there are these mathematical uh, techniques you can use basically to minimize the loss function and therefore get closer and closer to getting it right, which in the case of LLMs is like, guess the next word in the sentence. From that tiny idea, we have now built this sprawling, you know, brain in a box that can guess not just the next word, but give you whole paragraphs. I'm curious, before we get back into the mainstream, on the genetic side, how does it work? Like you're also trying to minimize the loss function or, or increase the reward, but through some sort of survival of the fittest genetic, you know, kind of adaptation instead? Exactly. So when you have like a gradient based technique, you define a loss function, right? So that's basically telling you, um, you make some predictions over data and the loss function tells you how good those predictions were. And then using calculus and some simple rules, which is actually only one rule called the chain rule, which is pretty crazy. That's that kind of underlies pretty much everything in modern AI. Pretty cool. But using that one rule, you can basically say, I need to tweak the parameters of my neural network in this direction to decrease the loss function. And the lowest possible loss function kind of corresponds to getting all of your training data classified correctly or not necessarily classified. Maybe it's like object detection or something. Right. But genetic algorithms use the same type of like loss function. The only difference is we're not using like any calculus. And to Mm. understand like at a high level how it works, we can look at something called hill climbing which is like a very simple version of genetic genetic algorithms. And basically all you do is you have like the current parameters for your neural network and you generate a random change to those. So you can just generate some random numbers and add or subtract them from your current parameters. And you check like, is this neural network, does it achieve a loss that's lower than the previous one? If right. so, replace the weights with the current weights that we just like updated. If not, then just retain like the other weights genetic algorithms get a bit more complicated. Does hill climbing imply some kind of like fitness of the algorithm and you want to, as you said, get it closer yep, and closer? Exactly. To... For genetic algorithms, they call it the fitness function because it's like yeah. more of an analogy to like biology. But if you just take that random update rule to see if it's better and then parallelize it across like tons of CPUs and right. apply some more like complex rules that people propose in research papers, that's kind of what that area looks like. You are now doing a PhD and you are simultaneously working in the field. Maybe let's start with academia since we were, we were there. What's your PhD about and how does it relate to maybe some of what people have been hearing in the news, if at, if at all? Yeah. So as I said, like my PhD is kind of related to just making deep learning more practical and usable. Practically, mm-hmm. when you look at like the specific topics that I've looked into, there are a couple of different things. One of them is pruning neural networks. So taking really large neural networks, potentially like a large language model and removing weights or making them smaller while maintaining their performance. And you could think that like that has massive practical implications. Like a lot of people hypothesize that when the chat GPT API was released, it had like a 10x cost reduction. People thought it was going to be way more expensive than it actually was. This is referring to like the GPT 3.5 turbo model in particular. It was like super cheap. And one of the hypotheses for like why it might be the case 
is that they could have potentially like pruned the model to get like a smaller model that's easier to host at comparable performance right. or done like model distillation where you train the small model using like the larger model. That's been some of the most interesting stuff that I've seen percolating up recently is folks working with some of the open source stuff or, you know, some of the llama and alpaca stuff that came out of meta and then, you know, was sort of given to the open source community or they, they, they ran with it is that people have been able, like you said, to very quickly say, all right, well, this used to run on these specialized processors in parallel with the big compute cluster. Now I've got it working on my laptop. Well, now I've got it working on my Pixel phone. And obviously at IO, they talked about having built like four different, you know, models of different sizes for different use cases, depending on, you know, what kind of device you're using it on or what kind of application you want. And then to your second point, not only have we seen, yeah, this ability to sort of compress the size, complexity, and cost, but also, as you said, and maybe this gets us back to almost the idea of evolution again. If you make something great by training it on a really big data set and using, you know, feedback from human reinforcement learning, then that model itself is a set of instructions, like a parent, like a blueprint. You can train a smaller model on less data with less time and less parameters, but also get, you know, reasonably high accuracy, what a year ago would have been, you know, considered like bleeding edge and best in class. And so then you're able to do things like, right have 100 million people hit your API every day and not blow through your 10 billion too quickly. Yeah. And I think one thing that we've seen with like all of these open source models, like if you look at how they're trained, a lot of the data that they're trained on is specifically instructions that are generated with like chat GPT. So Mm -hmm. people create data sets by scrubbing a bunch of data from like chat GPT API or whatever but they're taking all of these generations or dialogues from larger models and using them Mm -hmm. for training. And I think the big takeaway from there is that we see that these models that are trained over that data, even if they're pretty small, perform incredibly well. And it speaks to the power of knowledge distillation, which is the idea of taking this larger neural network, using its output as a training signal for like a smaller neural network. Typically, If we train like the small neural network from scratch, not even necessarily for LLMs, but just for neural networks in general, it oftentimes won't match the performance of the larger network trained from scratch. But if we train the larger network and then use it to provide a training signal or training data to the smaller model, the smaller model can often close a lot of the gap between its performance and the larger model. So we see for LLMs in particular, knowledge distillation is seemingly super effective. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know for a while there was sort of like, oh, we've discovered this scaling law and we just have to, you know, increase the parameters and, you know, like, you know, make sure we're getting more of this and and we'll see this increase in performance. But now there's been a lot of work going in the opposite direction, you know, and showcasing, right, that's something with, I forget what the biggest one ended up at, like, was it 504 billion parameters or something like that? But, you know, there are models Mm -hmm. that are far, far smaller than that, which, yeah, with sort of the pre-training almost, you know, with the the benefit of, you know, the reinforcement learning and the pre-training and almost like the domain expertise of like, you are a chatbot, you will get prompts and you will give responses as opposed to learn everything through the, the, the world, the corpus of the internet text, then, you know, that gives them a big advantage. They can come out with a lot more efficacy utility right out of the gate. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit about the corporate side of things, the, the work that you're doing. How are you managing to balance your, your PhD and your your work outside and what are you focused on at the company? Yeah. So one of the unique aspects of Rice in particular is that they really emphasize like minimal coursework on top of doing research. And because of that, I've basically throughout my entire PhD been able to take just one class a semester, which allows me to focus time on like 
either research or whatever job that I have at the time. So throughout the entire PhD, I've had a job. I think I was unemployed for a total of like three days throughout my whole PhD. So I originally worked for Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Technically, I was an intern, but I worked as an intern year round for like two straight years. So yeah, kind of weird classification there. But I worked for them basically writing recommendation systems for a while. Eventually, um, it kind of made sense to not be an intern anymore. So I went and worked for a startup that did data labeling called Allegion. There's a lot of like startups in that space, but Allegion specializes in video data. So that was pretty interesting. And then now I recently made a switch to a company called Rebuy, which is basically a SaaS platform for e-commerce recommendations and search. So we provide like a bunch of AI tooling that you would typically see on websites like Nike or whatever other big website that has a ton of engineers working for it, building AI powered products. And we basically package all of that in a SaaS platform where you can just check a box and any website, whether it be like Magic Spoon, which sells cereal, Liquid Death, which sells like sparkling water. We have 7,000 different brands that use our product. They can just check the box and then they get all of the AI powered e-commerce tech that like Nike would have. And so how is that fed to them? Is that through API endpoints? Is that something that, you know, you go in-house and help them add that to their code base? Like, how do they leverage your AI expertise? It kind of depends. So like, uh, when you look at a lot of different e-commerce websites, typically they're hosted through some major platform like Salesforce Commerce or Shopify. Um, There's also like big commerce, commerce tools. There are a bunch of different people who just like provide platforms for building you know, D2C e-commerce websites. So commerce websites where you're selling directly to customers, in other words. And basically the approach that we take is going to depend on what platform it's kind of operating on. So our largest platform is Shopify. And the cool thing about Shopify is that they provide this awesome platform for building e-commerce websites, but they also provide a lot of flexibility for like plugins or whatever developer support where people can come in and write right. apps that will run on people's Shopify websites. I got you. So you're like a, a plug into the Shopify CMS and they can click a button and sort of get that AI magic on top of their carousel of items or whatever it may be. Yep, exactly. So Shopify exposes tons of like APIs and webhooks where you can kind of integrate into someone's shop really easily, pull data that you would need to make recommendations and so forth. Other other providers are not quite as nice, so it's way harder to integrate with them. Shopify is like pretty incredible in the amount of like extensibility that they provide. So for people that are off of Shopify, typically it's more of an API-based framework. So we expose all of our products via APIs. People will kind of send us relevant data that we would need, and then we would respond with like recommendations or you know like conversion likelihoods. Um, how right, likely right. is this user to buy this product or whatever? So let's move over a little bit to the research field because that's how I came across you. I just felt like it was one of the nicest signal to noise, you know, ratios on Twitter, and and it didn't always start with kind of that like you don't you don't have the thread boy approach of like. 10 amazing things happen to AI today and they're all going to blow your mind. So buckle up, like, here we go, you know, and then it's just like the news that happened that day. But yeah, like, how do you pick and choose what to feature? How do you, you know, try to keep up? Obviously, you can't keep up with all the academic papers and the corporate stuff coming out, but how do you pick and choose what to read and focus on? Let's start there. And then from that, I'd love to hear about like what you're most excited about given, you know, the speed with which everything is moving and changing. 
so originally when I like just going back a little bit, I was originally a person that like hated social media. So I actually completely <laughs> deleted like all my LinkedIn and Instagram or whatever, like three years ago or something uh-huh. like that. But I completely purged myself off of social media for a while. But basically what happened is when I was in my PhD, I would keep these Google Docs of papers that I was reading with summaries to keep track of the different things that I would learn. Because typically, if I read a paper, I'll forget about it immediately. But if I take like 15 minutes to write a summary of the most important parts of the paper or whatever blog post that I'm reading, it'll stick in my head way better, right? So at some point during my PhD, I was like making all of these overviews of papers and I had like different Google Docs for like pruning or quantized training, um, just different types of stuff that I was looking into. And I realized that it would be pretty easy to just clean these up and turn them into kind of survey blog posts where you can see like an overview of all the research in like certain fields. Right. So back in undergrad, I became a writer for Towards Data Science because I had written like some articles before, but hadn't written anything in a long time. So I basically started out by converting some of these Google Docs and paper summaries into giant survey articles about different topics. Mm. And I posted them on Medium for a little while and then decided that I was going to launch my own Substack. So that's basically how that came about. We'll be sure to link uh, both your Twitter and your newsletter in the show notes. And you've got, yeah, over 4,000 folks tuning in to the newsletter, I guess, every week. So that's pretty awesome. All right. I will tell you the thing that tickles my brain the most that's happening. And then you can tell me. And then maybe we'll, we'll switch it up and we'll talk about the things we hate the most in the AI hype cycle before we head for the hill. So the thing that I love the most, and you saw this in like the Sparks of AGI paper from Microsoft, and I got the chance to talk to Paige Bailey the other day, who's like the PM for generative models at at Google DeepBrain, talking about how LLMs just trained on text have had some pretty amazing breakthroughs with emergent abilities recently, where you know, we never trained it to do math. And, you know, at GPT-3, it could barely do it. And then all of a sudden, it's doing basic arithmetic. And then at GPT-4, it's doing competitive, you know, mathematics exams and doing really well. Or, you know, picking up new languages, figuring out how to play chess and illustrate that in ASCII, you know, things that like, you have a hard time understanding exactly how it would just be parroting other things that it had seen out there. And that the more modalities you add to that, like when you have a multimodal model that has both image and text, it seems to gain a certain depth of abilities for context and reasoning and world you know, theory of mind. That to me is the most interesting because it feels like, okay, well, we've built this brain in a box with just text and it's gotten pretty, pretty, it's pretty useful now. It's like this giant thought calculator you can use. But once you start to add senses, it gets all these new abilities and that feels very human in a way. Like the more senses you layer on, you know, the more these neurons can sort of fire in interesting directions. So that's what I'm most excited about. You could reflect on that or just skip it if it doesn't interest you and tell me what you're most excited about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm excited about that as well. I haven't looked a ton into like multimodal LLMs. I hinted on it a bit like on my newsletter the last couple of weeks, which has been focused on prompting. Yeah. But kind of extending on your point, what I've been looking into in the last month is kind of the world of prompt engineering Um, And how Mm. you can kind of tweak the language model's input to get a lot of like different emerging capabilities. And it kind of relates to what you're saying, because one of the interesting things about these models is that they have emergent capabilities. And we can see these with like simple prompting approaches where like these much larger models will be able to do all kinds of crazy stuff. But 
they still fall short on a variety of like different tasks, whether it be like complex reasoning tasks or certain like arithmetic problems or something like that. Right. But the interesting part of that is that the language models actually seem to have the ability to solve those problems as long as you construct the prompt properly. So you see with like more advanced prompting techniques, like originally it was zero shot learning, which is just like describe the tasks of the language model, give it the input and let it generate the output. From there, like there is a simple extension of few shot learning, which is zero shot learning, except it also shows a few examples like input output pairs. So it could right. be like if we're classifying positive or negative sentences, um, your prompt also just includes like two sentences or five sentences with like associated labels. Even with like simple prompting techniques like that, we see emergent abilities. We also see the language models falling short in a lot of areas. But then if we use more complex techniques, we see that the language models are way more capable than we even realize. We just have to know how to interact <laughs> right. with them properly, which is pretty cool. So you see things like chain of thought prompting where it's like maybe the language model can't solve like this multi-step reasoning problem. But if you encourage it to just generate a rationale, so a step-by-step description of how it arrived at its final answer, it actually gets like way more accurate, which is weird. And then from the multimodal perspective, there's also like a paper that extended and showed that chain of thought prompting with like image modality added is more effective than just with text. So yeah, pretty interesting how we're seeing some of these like methods for interacting with language models evolve, but also it's questionable whether like prompt engineering is going to die once models get like really good. Um, We'll see. (laughs) I saw that. I don't know if it was you who tweeted it and I grabbed it or just where it came from, but yeah, that Andre Carpathy tweet from the other day, you know, it was showing task accuracy versus right. Like how much effort you're putting in zero shot prompting. He was comparing to just like throw out a random question to a random person. Well, you know, we'll see what happens. Give, you know, examples of solving the task with few shot prompting. You know, this might be somebody who's practiced a little, you know, give them, like you said, a more complex prompt than on a machine that's been fine-tuned with RLHF, and suddenly it's like you're talking to an expert. And to your point before, if you use that last, as you scale up the level of effort and complexity that goes into fine-tuning the model and the prompt, a small base model can now start to perform, you know, maybe comparably to a big model with a zero-shot prompt, right? Yeah, and this is something, I, I made a note of this in a previous newsletter, but it's something that, like, I guess people who are just getting into AI might get wrong sometimes, but prompting approaches are completely different from fine tuning. And the reason for that is that when you're prompting a language model, you don't ever update any of its parameters. You're just adding extra context to the prompt and generating output. Fine tuning Mm -hmm. in particular refers to training the parameters of the model with like gradient descent, for example, over some data set. And for sure, like for since GPT-2 or GPT-3, we always see that like fine tuning, if we're allowed to perform fine tuning, um, the performance is always like really good. The problem is that the model is like no longer generic in a lot of cases. So if you fine tune right, right. it to perform sentence classification, it does sentence classification really good, but it can't solve like thousands of other tasks that the generic model could with like just prompting. Yeah, I guess I mixed a few things together there. I mean, on this chart that he shared, there was zero shot, few shot, retrieval augmented few shot, but then fine tuning and RLHF was the last one. So, right, those are not the same thing, but they are two ways of thinking about how we can get models that you said, like like you pointed out, sometimes make sort of what seem like simple mistakes or or struggle with basic, you know, problems in certain areas of logic 
you can surpass, you know, you can get around those blocks with either better prompting or more fine tuning. Yeah. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense to have like a super generic model. Like there are like tons of different applications where it makes sense to fine tune your model towards like a particular domain, whether it be with like, you know, trying to create a medical chat bot that's like very specialized in that type of data. We deal with this at Rebuy, you know, specializing LLMs towards like consumer products or something like that, or even towards like an individual merchant so that it can talk about like product catalogs sold by a certain merchant. But yeah, a lot of times fine tuning is like both super effective and important because you need your LLM to be specialized in some like particular problem. Yes, it does seem like there's two things. There's like folks who are specializing e-commerce, medical, law, finance, and then there are, you know, the players who have the money to burn and they're saying we're you know we're going to go big 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 wide 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 with the next generation of you know just very gpt oriented that's going to be able to do it all and so those two things are kind of coexisting all right last thing before i let you go what is the thing that yeah as you look out and try to you know share what you want to do on twitter and put stuff in the newsletter and listen to all this stuff what is the stuff that if anything gets you a little bit frustrated yeah i mean I don't get frustrated about like a ton of stuff. I think there's a lot of people who are frustrated with like the number of people that are in AI right now, kind of like people who claim to be experts, but have like just gotten into the field. They don't know like anything about how these models work or whatever. Right. For me personally, like, although it can be frustrating at times, my opinion is that the more people, the better, because if you're working in AI, you would be ridiculous to say that you're not excited about like this many people caring about what you're doing. Right. So as AI becomes more important, like we have more job opportunities, it's more emphasized to the companies. So like the AI product becomes people's core products, it's getting tons of funding or whatever. So I think that's like a good thing. The only bad side of that is um, like, sometimes one thing that I have noticed is that kind of it's comparable to a long time ago when ml and like deep learning just became popular there's like a common meme where statisticians hated ml people so ml was like the new hot topic and all of these mathematicians or statisticians were mad at like ml people because it's like (laughs) there's no theory behind it like bayesian models are better why does everybody care about this this is so stupid you guys don't know anything about statistics Now, like the entire like ML research community has been solidified for quite a while. So all the ML researchers are looking at the people who care about LLMs and giving the same type of hate, right? So it'll be these people where it's like they're upset about like something related to LLMs or calling these people like stupid. And this is like an ML technique that's existed for years or whatever. So occasionally like people will just assume that you're like someone who doesn't know anything and give you some flack on like twitter or whatever for no reason where they're like this has existed forever they're just like (laughs) upset because they think you don't know anything so definitely lots of hate comments with people who like i guess don't read my bio and don't see that i've like (laughs) also been in ai for like 10 years i guess but i don't know you can't really get too upset about random people no press is bad press no press is bad press Exactly. Yeah. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I want to shout out somebody who came on Stack Overflow, helped to spread a little knowledge, save a question from the dustbin of history, awarded April 27th to Mark Setchell. I need to convert a fixed width file to a comma delimited one in Unix. How do I do it? Well, Mark Setchell has the answer, earned himself a lifeboat badge for saving the question, and has helped over 12,000 
people. So if you've ever been curious or had this problem, we've got the answer for you in the show notes. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content over here at Stack Overflow. Find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. So I'm Cameron Wolf. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's Cameron R. Wolf, because there's actually another super famous Cameron Wolf. Um, his middle name is also actually an R, but he doesn't use it for like <laughs> academic publications. He isn't. He's like an awesome medical researcher that works at Duke. But yeah, I'm the director of AI at Rebuy Engine, a commerce AI company that provides uh, search and recommendations via SaaS product. And you can find me either at my deep learning focus newsletter, cameronrwolf.substack.com, or my Twitter, which is just Seawolf Research. And Wolf has an E at the end of it. It's not like the animal. So, yep. All right, Cameron, thanks for coming on. Great to chat. And everybody else, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.